Welcome to the Crypt, Mouseketeers. This is Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I uh, review films. <laughs> I'm actually a little disappointed. You managed to combine Tales from the Crypt and the Mickey Mouse Club, oh. and you said it with just this sort of just regular everyday, like... You didn't like Crypt Keeper it up. You didn't like Mickey no, Mouse Club um, it up. You just sort of, of a, like more of a deadpan kind of guy. Mm. That's, that's my humor today oh, let me, let me try for this moment. Welcome to the Crypt Mouseketeers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never really realized how close those two laughs were. Uh, yeah. Anyway, have you, have you ever seen them photographed together? I have. Introduce yourself, William. Um, I'm William. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I also am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing... Actually, we're having doing something interesting. We're reviewing movies that we are catching up on from earlier in the year. There were new releases this last week uh, at Critically Acclaimed, but it, there wasn't a lot, and it wasn't a lot that we were super passionate about. So we thought we would take this opportunity to each catch up on some stuff, which means that Whitney saw some indie stuff and I saw some blockbusters that people have asked mm. me why the hell haven't I seen that yet. So, Well, one of those indie films I saw actually is a new release. Well, kind so of. So we have one new release this week. Okay. Well, we've got uh, Bad Boys for Life, which I'm finally getting around to. Bad Education, but not for life. Uh, Onward, which I missed because of the whole coronavirus thing, uh, The Painted Bird, and Whitney and I are going to be reviewing a new release from Paul Bartel, a director who died kind of a long time ago and left behind a feature film that never came out. That's right. So the American Cinematheque uh, found it, cleaned it up, put it up kind of nice, or someone well, did anyway. But they didn't really clean it up. Uh, well, you can they, see it. <laughs> they found Paul Bartel's personal print of this ah. film. And they decided to screen it, and it's also available uh, through as a rental through the Cinematheque. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's. Um, but they link to Vimeo, so yeah, but but yeah. you have to go to the Cinematheque site to, to yeah. get it. By clean it up, I just mean it doesn't look terrible; like it just looks okay. And mm -hmm. um, uh, also on the critically acclaimed streaming club, we're going to be reviewing the thriller classic Marathon Man, which, uh, in true streaming club streaming club fashion, uh, one of us hadn't seen it. I never saw Marathon Man. I never saw it either. Actually. Oh, okay, so, yeah, cool. We're, we're both catching up on Mar Marathon Man. So this is a big which week is, of uh, catch up, which uh, was which is currently available for free on Crackle. Yeah, uh, the best streaming service. Long uh, pause. <laughs> well, Long it's, pause. Well, it's no Quibi. Uh, <laughs> Crackle is Sony's streaming service, yeah. and I think it has a few somewhat notable original productions, but yeah. for the most part, it's largely ignored. Yeah. Uh, the, we, we decided uh, with the streaming club to sort of spread our wings and try a few services that we haven't gotten around to yet. And Crackle's, like, actual, like, um, their offerings are so limited, we couldn't even, like, pick a genre. We were just, like, just, something on what, Crackle. What are some movies on Crackle? So, yeah, yeah. We, we, we scoured through what they have on Crackle and came up with Marathon Man, which is actually yeah. kind of an important movie. It is an important movie, mm -hmm. so I'm glad I finally got around to it. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk about all of those things. That's right. Starting with, do you want to start with the new release or the biggest release of the whole year? No, let's start with the new release. Let's All talk right. about a movie that people actually like should probably know about, even though it's you know kind of a footnote in history in a lot of ways. Let's talk about Shelf Life. All right, we'll start with Shelf Life. Tell people about mm. the career of the absolutely wonderful mm. actor and director Paul Bartel. Uh, whenever Paul Bartel and uh, and his 
I only assume a biologically connected twin sister, Mary Warrenoff. <laughs> They were, very close. they were very close. They're very good friends. They often came as a package deal. Uh, yeah. Paul Bartell and Mary Warnoff often showed up in movies together. Mm. Rock uh, and Roll High School, yeah. Chopping Mall. You would just see them in everything. Yeah, they'd always be standing next to each other, and they were sublime. Just yeah. when, Whenever they showed up, you knew you were in for some kind of treat, because they always brought the weird. They were in 17... I just checked. They were in 17 movies together, and they frequently played a married couple. Mm. Yeah. As far as I know, they didn't date. They weren't no. a married couple in real life. They were just so. very good friends who love to work together. And they're both two of the most interesting character actors of the age. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Paul Bertel was also a director who got his start in the Corman School and directed a lot of uh, films for Corman, including, perhaps most notably, uh, Death Race 2000. Yeah, the original Death Race before the Jason mm. Statham one. Uh, Death Race 2000, which we highlighted in our uh, our. Iron List when we talked about the best dystopian movies mm. is a wonderfully demented, cruel, vicious, yes. funny uh, uh, look at Americana. And it's a near future in which uh, the American masses are entertained by a cross country race in which the more pedestrians you hit, the more points you get. Mm. It's got a great <laughs> cast of, of like uh, notable character actors like mm. Sylvester Stallone before he was famous. Um, and uh, yeah, it's colorful, it's quirky, yeah. it's funny, it's mean, it's great. Paul Bartel was a little demented, and I love that about him. Uh, his biggest, I guess, hit, or what he's best known for, his most celebrated film, is the 1982 film? 1982. 1982 film, Eating Raoul. And uh, Eating Raoul uh, is it's a, a wonderful film about, uh, it's very, it's, it's like a twisted version of Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm. Uh, a couple kills a guy. And uh, Raul, a friend of a uh, friend of theirs who comes in, decides uh, he can help them dispose of the bodies, and they get this uh, tidy little murder racket started up pretty pretty quick. And yeah. what what do they do with the bodies? And well, it's called eating Raul. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, eating, doesn't eating Raul have a Criterion edition now? Like it it's does. a very well respected yeah, yeah. movie. But he, everything he did had a weird stamp on it. He did. Mm. One of the more interesting proto slasher films called Private Parts, not to be confused with the Howard Stern film, mm. uh, about uh, a, uh, I think she's a teenager or a very young woman who goes to live with her aunt in like a big urban sprawl, rundown apartment building and gets involved in the lives of the people who live there and someone is killing them off one by one in a very leering, creepy mm. fashion. It's one of those ones where Paul Bartel's sense of humor is weaponized like it's not it at, at no point does it make you feel like oh this is a fun paul bartell film it's like no paul's pissed about something <laughs> paul's getting paul's going through some shit yeah. he did a short film i always wanted to see apparently was an influence on the truman show called the secret cinema um, yeah i haven't seen it either which is uh, i think it was made in the 1960s and it was about a woman who discovers that there's like a little movie theater in like in her town and every week they show movies that people have secretly made of her Whoa. Yeah. Which is a really mm. creepy idea. And I've always wanted to say I never got around to it. Mm. Um, it, uh, but, it used to not be available. It probably is now. But yeah. yeah. He he didn't direct too much. He did a film in the, the mid 80s called The Long Shot, which I haven't seen. Mm. Uh, he did uh, one of the segments in Amazon Women on the Moon. Oh, which one was his? Uh, the uh, Carrie Fisher scare film, the black and white scare film. Oh, that's end. a hilarious bit. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that was Paul Bartel's segment. In oh, yeah. Because he's Women in that one. Yeah. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, he showed up in a lot, like, 
if you were watching any kind of films that were even remotely off the wall, you probably saw Paul Bartel in them. Mm. Uh, he was in like Gremlins 2, but he was also in The Living End mm. like a few years after that. And the last film he made as a director was back in 1993, and it was called Shelf Life. Uh, Shelf Life wasn't his brainchild. Uh, yeah. He hooked up with Olan Jones, Andrea Stein, and Jim Turner, who are, are the three, the only three actors in the movie, apart from Paul Bartel, who like shows up in like little cameos throughout. Yeah, uh, and they're also the writers, and they conceived this as. And you can tell when you're watching the movie, they conceive this as like an avant-garde th- experimental theater project. Yeah, it's it's very, very much an acting exercise. Mm. By the way, these are all actors who you probably don't know their names, but you might recognize them like, oh, she was that lady in uh, uh, Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, Olan, oh. Olan Jones worked with Tim Burton a couple yeah. times. She was in Natural Born Killers. Uh, Jim Turner had, I think, his biggest role, which was like was driving me nuts when I was watching this movie. Like, how do I know this guy? Because his filmography is all really tiny roles. He was uh, in a show on HBO called Arliss, which I sometimes... Sometimes saw before I saw other shows I actually wanted to see. <laughs> Waiting for Arliss. Not man. his. Not not. That's not a critique on him. It was just Arliss was about a sports agent, and I didn't care. Hmm. Um, but um, in any case, these are fun character actors, and the premise of the show might actually be familiar to some people because it's been played with in other movies. Hmm. But. Um, it's the 1960s. Well, you're, you're thinking specifically of Blast from the Past, aren't you? A little bit, but also yeah. they played with this and stuff like Grease 2, and there were some Twilight Zone episodes kind of like this as oh, well. Oh, yeah. But basically the idea is it's the 1960s, and like quite a few Americans, uh, there's a family who has a bomb shelter. They're worried that uh, the commies mm. are going to blow us all to hell with their nuclear so-and-sos. And as a result of uh, their the father's paranoia and the mom's alcoholism, when JFK is assassinated, they decide, okay, this is it. This is the whole like, country's like, going to the dogs. Th- they get the, they see the news on the TV and they just say, well, this is it. And they immediately yeah. get up and walk straight into the bomb shelter. Yeah. And then and they seal it shut and it stays locked. And then short credits. And then we cut to 30 years later. Mom and dad died a long time ago. The kids never left. And now they're all in their 30s. And yeah. you get to see what, and basically the whole movie is. What happens? It's, it's a day in the life. It's a day in the life. Yeah. It's all just 24 hours in, in their life in this box in which they have been living. And they've been recycling the same toys and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, various props that they have throughout the, the entire time. And what you see is what happens when you take Americana and you just put it in a Petri dish and let it fester and recycle <laughs> over itself and copy itself and you remove context from from our various rituals and sayings and just what happens no, to this... youth without any sense of history, context, mm. ethics, morality. It's creepy, actually. <laughs> it's it's really, yeah, it's really kind of freaky. Uh, I was reminded very much of Dogtooth. Yeah. Uh, if you ever saw Dogtooth. Mm-hmm. Um but also there's that Brendan the, uh, Fraser movie Blast from the Past, yeah. which is sort of the cheerful version of yeah. this. Blast from the Past is the family hides out for years and Brendan Fraser is raised down there. But he's raised in sort of cheery early 1960s mm. philosophy where everything is sort of square and neat. Yeah, Blast from the Past mm. isn't, isn't cynical, like at all, really. It's, no, it's, no, no. It's, it's weird because it's got a cynical foundation. 
it, but, it, it could have been, but yeah, it yeah. like came right at the tail end of the 90s. It's basically, how do we um, get a guy to jump right out of the 1950s into the present day and be fish out of water? Yeah, and it's cute. It's a cute yeah, movie. I like uh, it. Still life, yeah. These, these ki- kids, essentially, they're adults, but they never learned anything about the outside world uh, since they were toddlers, I guess. They were like maybe yeah. four, yeah. like four or five. So they barely remember the outside world. And they do have sort of these spiritual visitations from the TV. Yeah. The TV uh, is on all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's constantly fuzzing static, but occasionally they'll get a few seconds of a program. Yeah. And because they don't have any context for what that is, all they know is that this is something that gives them information. Uh-huh. So whenever they hear any kind of phrase from the TV, they work that phraseology into their rituals almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to pass the time, just like little kids, they fe- they start inventing games that they play and clearly they've played a lot of games over and over again over the course of the centuries to the point where it's evolved into something you can't even recognize anymore because there's no context whatsoever uh, any decades longer. not centuries or, but you're oh, right sorry, decades but sorry. you're right they have like dialogue and songs that they know and they've been rehearsing overall and if you it's it, it's actually a really fascinating movie because even though all of this kind of plays like a bunch of random yelling I think there's actually some real intelligence to this story because if you work your way backwards, you can figure out where a lot of this comes from. Like, there's a game that they play that clearly stems from one day when dad was drunk and hit one of them. Mm. And it has evolved over time into a more epic story. But they've never processed what it actually meant, nor do they understand it at all because they've never become adults. Mm. Boy, is that terrifying. And they're like, they're they're emulating things that they've seen like on TV. Probably a lot of them like half remembered from when they were little kids. Mm-hmm. So like when they play high school, it gets really surreal and weird because they're, they clearly they saw like a scare film about why you shouldn't smoke right. or something <laughs> like that. And so they're playing off all of these sort of bad boy beatnik beats and it's just eerie and mm. wrong and everything is the lighting is gross the set is disgusting um well, the the kids like they're shaven and they're clean like they're not wallowing in utter filth yeah that's it's it's more like clutter yeah and in fact it's more like clutter in terms of uh, like production design mm-hmm. rather than like actual lived-in clutter. Yeah, it looks it looks almost like a kid show. In yeah, fact, there's, actually, there's, there's a lot of bright like green and red gels to make it look mm-hmm. visually interesting. What it actually reminded me of more than anything else was, and if you listen to our show Cancel Too Soon, you'll know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Little Muppet Monsters. <laughs> just dwelling in filth in the basement making up stories and worshiping the TV yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Little Muppet Monsters if you don't listen to our show cancel too soon we review TV shows that lasted one season or less and there was a very short lived Jim Henson Muppet series that nobody talks about anymore that was all about these sort of uh, uh, sort of third rate Muppets who live in the basement of the house where all the Muppets live Mm. And they're putting on like public access TV shows. It sounds like a better idea than it is. It's actually a terrible, terrible series. Like, <laughs> it's not funny. The animation that they put on is really quite bad. Maybe two good jokes in three episodes. Um, but it's got this kind of like this grime to it, this kind of cluttery, grimy. Uh, kids who found like a trash pile and decided to do whatever they can to make it sort of fun and turn all the the various guts of things that used to have purpose and make them into uh, uh, whimsy. But 
the way that these kids play, you realize that a lot of the things that they're playing with are wrong. Like, there was a bedroom in the bomb shelter. Mm. That's where they put mom and dad. Yeah. You do not want to play in that room. And, and, <laughs> that room is bad. <laughs> it was very, 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 very bad. Yeah. Boy, is that weird. It's it's yeah. hovering right on the edge of funny and actually terrifying. And I find that fascinating no, that the, Paul Bartel can keep that alive that long. Well, the, the movie is only 81 minutes, so it's actually sure. not that long. Uh, yeah, yeah the, that idea of, uh, of sick humor... Uh, I feel like that's not something we see in films a lot anymore. Uh, mm. When we do, it's usually very crass. You know, something like Deadpool, which is uh, you know just brazen and and adolescent. Uh, something like Shelf Life is. It, well, I mean, it's satire, isn't it? It's mm. it's trying to zero in on a certain kind of uh, dark sense of humor where you can look at the horrendous plight of humanity and sort of chuckle it off. And, uh, and I, don't I, know if I'm I like that. Enough. I'm, I'm sitting with it. I don't know if I'm, ch- I'm chuckling, <laughs> but I, I'm sitting with it. And I think to myself of like, when you think about all like the kind of mixed and horrible messaging we have given our kids over mm. the course of this, it's a very American film. It's a very culturally, it's very American. Mm. When you look at all the, the absolute bullshit that we have like shoveled down kids heads from the stuff we've had on television to blind patriotism to mm. mixed messages about religion and uh, when you take all of that and then you just never give kids anything else. Any, well, any co- context because they don't have the benefit of growing up. Like I was, th- I was looking at this movie and I was thinking about like how what this is is all of those like man-child comedies we've had over the last like twenty years, the Judd Apatow brand in particular, mm. and how when you take away all of the things that make you go, <laughs> this is okay, right? You take all that away and you just leave all the bullshit, all of the stuff that is not cool. Jim Turner, I feel like, is doing what Will Ferrell has been getting at this entire time, where he's completely immature in this very stepbrothers kind of way, this almost grotesque yeah. kind of immaturity, and sort of dares you to look at it and to find any sense of sympathy. And yet you can't not have sympathy for these poor people. They're trapped. Mm. They're they're stuck in a bubble. They refuse to learn anything. They were they're incapable of acquiring new information, even if they wanted it. Yeah, and they're incapable of growing up, bettering themselves, learning things that might enlighten them. Um, and you realize that this is maybe only one step removed from hell. So for <laughs> me, it's funny, but I was looking at it almost like a horror movie. And yeah, that's I think I think that's one of the cool things about Paul Bartel is how. A lot of people can blend genres. Paul Bartel, I think, was a master of blending tone, mm. where this is whimsical and silly and also the most frightening thing possible. And yeah, those are both simultaneously I can, true. I, and uh, because, and you can tell that it's, I said you could tell it's based on a theatrical production. Yeah. And it has that kind of uh, very, very alive theatrical immediacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see all of the, 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 as this day progresses, just just how. I don't want to say shallow, but just how uh, strangely unsophisticated these souls are in yeah. this uh, little tiny room where they've essentially gone completely insane. Yeah. And it's my wife watched this with me and we were kind of waiting for the shoe to drop where somebody's going to murder somebody else or there's yeah. going, it's just going to go full on flowers in the attic and we didn't want that to happen either. Yeah. Uh, and no, it's actually just sort of this weird kind of social experiment to, analyze what would happen if like you were talking about 
uh, adult context were removed from basic 1960s Americana and yeah. what that would look like. And what would it look like? It would look like total madness. And that's a fun uh, thought exercise. Yeah. It's a fun theatrical exercise. I wish I could have seen this on stage. I bet this would have been stronger on stage. Yeah. I think that's a, probably a fair assessment. But I uh, do and, think it's really quite fascinating as a yeah. film, at least as an experimental yeah. film. And from what I understand, uh, there's a final shot in this movie which changes the context of what we've seen. And that was Paul Bartel's idea. Mm. Uh, that wasn't in the original script. In the original script, that last scene was taken away. And if you take away that last scene, I'm just going to say it leaves you in a completely different mood. I think so. I think it's one of those ones where um, you, I'm not going to tell you if it's lighter or darker, but mm. it could have been light or dark. And instead it is a light or dark. And... I'm kind of grateful that they made the choice that they did. I think I prefer it that way, but it could also be argued that maybe it would have been stronger. And I think it's a conversation we can have. Mm. In any case, I think I sh- both endings work. Yeah, but, yeah. Both, both fine, but you're right. They're different films. Mm. They're different. It's almost like um, uh, it's not a one to one comparison, but if you look at the original Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, mm. where uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, if you haven't seen it, is considered by many to be the first proper horror film mm. in a lot of ways. Uh, German expressionist film about a hypnotist who hypnotizes a sleepwalker into doing evil deeds. Mm-hmm. It has one of the first twist endings in cinema. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the first, it's been argued. And that twist ending is simultaneously both, oh, thank God, and also, oh, that's equally sad and horrifying, actually. <laughs> like, it's a kind of a great twist ending because it changes everything, but also kind of doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I really love it for that. So this is kind of it's not a twist, but yeah, there's just a little a little coda that tweaks it a bit. But um, in any case, I'm really really glad this is out there. I'm glad people are able to find it now. Uh, it is still available. Yeah, it's on Vimeo Shelf Life uh, through the American Cinematheque. Uh, if you really like it, I mean, obviously you've got it on Vimeo. But the last couple of times American Cinematheque has played something this kind of rare and undiscovered, a like small DVD Blu-ray house eventually put it out on DVD. So I wouldn't be surprised if Shelf Life comes out eventually from like Vinegar Syndrome or something. Mm. Um, But uh, yeah, it's, I think it's worth seeing. Uh, It is also very quirky and odd and definitely not for all tastes. It's, it's it's a legit cult film. It's definitely very odd. Uh, And I love that. I love that oddness. I miss it. Uh, I'm kind of astonished to see a film that looks and feels like this uh, being made as late as 1993. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, it I feels guess, like early 80s. Yeah, it feels yeah. like from a decade before when yeah. this kind of experimental, uh, really shrill cult-like cinema was a, a little bit at a higher ebb. Man, this is the same year as Jurassic Park, for goodness sake. <laughs> can can yeah. you imagine like seeing Jurassic Park and Shelf Life playing at the same oh. time in the same cinema? Well, I guess it was never released, but yeah, the... That, that was the film landscape at the time. Things yeah, there was sort of exploding pop-wise. probably but, explains why this had trouble finding distribution. Yeah, and, uh, it, and, it, and it, technically it didn't. Uh, it played at a few festivals, a few cinematechs, a few uh, like local art houses have played it over the years here and there. Uh, you can find posters like, here, here's from like 15 years ago when it played in like a theater in Seattle. But one could make the convincing argument that it is technically a 2020 film. Because it's only just now being properly released to the world. I suppose. I suppose. Um, But in any case, interesting film. I'm glad I got to see something Mm kind of new. Uh, But let's move on. Let's move on to the film that is, as of now, the highest grossing film 
of 2020. And if you had told people that the highest grossing film of 2020 would have come out in January, back in January, mm-hmm. they probably would have slapped you. Uh, and instead, we got Bad Boys for Life, which I missed in theaters. And again, we're just playing catch up this week. And it's one of the movies that throughout the year, people are like, why the hell did, haven't you seen that? How did you miss that? And the answer is, um, I, I missed it. <laughs> there was a screening. I missed it. Mm-hmm. I meant to get around to it. Never quite did. And now I can. Wasn't ha! It? Thanks, home video. It wasn't uh, wasn't that important to us. <laughs> no, I mean, I was going to get around to it. It's a significant release. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I'm not opposed to the Bad Boys movies. I, I have an interesting... Maybe not interesting relationship, but a kind of an up and down relationship with the Bad Boys movies, where I actually like one better than two. Mm. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the Bad Boys movies, uh, the original Bad Boys was Michael Bay's first feature film. Uh, it starred Will Smith and Martin Lawrence as buddy cops. Uh, Will Smith plays the cool one. Martin Lawrence plays the not cool one. But in their first adventure together in Bad Boys 1... Uh, they have to uh, help a witness, but she is confused and thinks Martin Lawrence is the cool one. And so he has to pretend to be the cool one, even though he is not the cool one. That sounds terrible. It was originally conceived as a comedy vehicle for Dana Carvey and John Lovitz. And that's hmm. true. This Dana Carvey. I'm not from, sure if that's better or worse. Dana yeah. Carvey and John Lovitz, they had an idea where we're going to have this sort of wacky, uh, you know, buddy cop movie, you know, uh, um, uh, mistaken identity kind of shtick and the whole structure is there it's the whole movie is clearly this Dana Carvey John Lovett's dumb comedy the genius of it is twofold one they got Will Smith just at the right time because he was not big yet but we could tell he was gonna be I mean he was big he was a big rapper he was big on TV but in his film career he hadn't quite popped yet and we're just like ooh Oh, I can't. I want to see Will Smith in a cool action movie. Martin Lawrence was already big on TV, so that was a good get. Will Smith and Martin Lawrence together. Awesome casting. Totally cool. Kind of reframes it a little bit. I like that a lot. And then you have Michael Bay, a director who had something to prove. He was not just going to do a dumb comedy, he was going to take that dumb comedy and he was going to supercharge it. And I actually think, ironically, that that kind of grounded him a little bit. It makes Bad Boys feel more like a real movie. Than some of his later films. Um, I like Bad Boys 1, fine. I think it's a right. good, fun, buddy cop comedy. Uh, Bad Boys 2 is the apocalypse. Like, I actually like have trouble watching Bad Boys 2. It is so frenetic. It is so chaotic. I, I kind of admire the enthusiasm with which Michael Bay directed that movie, but I actually just don't enjoy watching it. <laughs> and it, it, I know people... Hail it as this sort of classic example of the ultimate Hollywood excess, and I can appreciate that, but I just don't enjoy watching it. So Bad Boys for Life comes out, and by the way, how did you fuck this up? It's Bad Boys 3 Life. Bad Boys 3 and then Bad Boys 4 Life. What you do is Bad Boys 4 Life, but the E is a 3. And then the next movie, it's Bad Boys number 4 Life. No? No? No one with me on this? No. No one's with me on this? Anyway. Uh, it's, it seems like a missed opportunity, especially since they're planning on making another one anyway. Oh, no. Well. Well, it doesn't mean anything to me. I haven't seen any of these bad you've boys. You've never seen any of the bad boys no. movies? Because I don't want to. <laughs> and I've never, ch- you would hate this. I've, you would I've, hate these I've never been in a position where I've had to, to watch a you, bad boys movie, so I just haven't. You're the guy who hates The Rock. 
And I actually, yes. and I like The Rock, but okay. like, and I, I haven't seen Armageddon either, and I hope it to keep it that way. I, I, you would hate it. It's yeah. the exact kind of thing that pisses you off. Right. It's just, it's just um, fireballs and anger and pop culture references. I, I feel like and, I know it anyway. Like, yeah. I haven't seen it, but you know, I know, I know enough about Michael Bay to just sort of picture the film. Got, again, I don't hate Michael Bay. I think what he does is very particular, and I think it's better when it's grounded in something than when he's given free reign just to go crazy. Because mm-hmm. Michael Bay, when he's crazy, is borderline incomprehensible. It also brings out kind of the worst in him, I think, because he ends up pandering to a lot of really ugly things. Uh, things like uh, really blind jingoistic pro-militarization. Yeah, yeah, uh, things just... like uh, you know outright toxic mil- masculinity, outright, racism, homophobia. There's a lot of gross stuff in Michael Bay's movies, and I think the more like rope you give him, the the tighter he just <laughs> pulls that rope in a in a unpleasant yeah. way. But um, in any case, Bad uh, Bad Boys for Life wasn't directed by Michael Bay. Uh, it was directed by I want to say. Yeah, they're Belgian. Belgian directors, uh, Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falah, mm-hmm. uh, who are credited as Adil and Bilal. I haven't seen any of their previous films. Um, they have a really nice style. I will say this. It's a very pretty film. I think there's okay. the lighting in this movie is very, very sharp. There is an action sequence towards the end, which actually has some really novel camera work that I haven't seen before in action movies, Okay, which is hard to do. So I wanted to say, even though I actually didn't end up enjoying this movie, their work for higher directors, this doesn't feel like a passion project where they really wanted to tell this story. Uh-huh. They shot the script. They shot it well. Mm-hmm. The problem is, Bad Boys for Life, it's actually not doing anything terribly different from the other Bad Boys movies, but I don't know if I've ever seen a movie age so poorly so quickly. Because this was okay in January, and it is not okay in July. It is not. This movie is about, like, the absolute worst stuff that we see in cop movies. That after we've had the massive uh, nationwide protests against police violence in this country... Um, is called a lot of attention to the way that police have been portrayed pretty consistently throughout the whole of popular culture in America. And you can draw a pretty clear line between the sort of heroic outlaws of the Western, people who like have to go like outside of conventional ethics or morality in order to bring justice to a wild frontier, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And uh, a lot of cop shows have and, and movies have been perpetuating that this whole time, where police are either these sort of unflappable uh, moral paragons who should be respected and trusted at all times. You get stuff like Dragnet mm-hmm. or um, uh, often Law and Order. There have been exceptions to that, but they're pretty much just like, we're trying to do the right thing, and then we do. Yeah. Um, or you have the Dirty Harry mold, where you have cops who... We, we know that the right thing to do is to torture and kill people and do like incredibly unethical bad things because this one time, it's we, we got it. Mm. It's this one. This is the exception right here. Problem well, this, is, this, when is you, this is why we need to be able to do whatever we want to, because yeah. there's so, some bad guys out there that are so bad yeah. that we need to take things to extremes. The original Dirty Harry was actually a very direct reaction to Miranda rights, which yeah. were pretty new at the time. We're basically like, and hey, what if the people we arrested still had rights? And the cops are like, well, we don't want that. 
Yeah, and, which I, is a I'm, very disturbing sentiment. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was protested by a lot of a uh, lot of right wing groups and, and yeah. politicians at the time because they thought that criminality would just run rampant now. Well, well, if, if the criminal has rights, then uh, why why are we protecting somebody if they're a criminal? It's yeah. like what, what do they deserve? Even though they they're innocent commi- until proven they, guilty, they just committed a crime. Why should we trust them? Why should we give them any rights? We yeah. should be able to just sort of. toss them aside however we want to and the dirty hairy school of cop movie where Mm -hmm. sometimes you have to go rogue in order to do the right thing and in the end everything's okay uh uh, is you know maybe you get away with that once but when every cop movie does that it becomes the status quo and it becomes the thing we're just sort of fine with Mm -hmm. and i might have been willing at the beginning of this year to sort of take Bad Boys for Life on its surface level and go, oh, it's like a dumb 80s action movie with a bunch of cops going rogue and shit. Mm. Um, you know, seen it. I've seen worse versions of it. And I might have given it kind of a, a pass. Yeah. Watching it now, I'm actually like pretty grossed out by a lot of this movie. Like, And, and honestly, I should have been grossed out at the time. This is a conversation we should have been having for a long time. And mm. I'm embarrassed that I, I wasn't thinking about it at the time. And... I don't feel like there's anything else in the movie that sort of rescues it from that because you see things like the movie opens with what's supposed to be cute. It's like, it seems like this crazy car chase and Will Smith and Martin Lawrence are like careening around corners and endangering civilians. And there are cops that are tailing them and everything like that. And like, Oh God, who are they chasing? That's so horrible that they would cause all this. I mean, they don't blow shit up or anything like that, mm-hmm. but clearly people are like, like they're getting whiplash. Well, and stopping. They just wanted lunch and they're yeah, just, no, uh, no, they're, uh, they're Martin Lawrence. Got to get that extreme flavor. <laughs> Martin Lawrence's daughter is having a baby. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that makes it okay to do all those bad things because mm. they're bad boys. Um, for, for life, I understand. It's always weird to me how they sort of embrace that song because the whole point of that song in the TV show Cops, which is also very problematic, is uh, finally ba- off the air. I know, like, like this year. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> but bad boys, the song, hmm. the bad boys are the criminals. And yet, in the movies, they call themselves the bad boys. Mm. And I'm like, that kind of says it all right there, doesn't it? Mm. That we're kind of celebrating these sort of negative cop behaviors because it's fun when these guys do it. Yeah. And so when they do things like like Will Smith ends up getting shot at the beginning of the movie by uh, um, like a cartel that has a grudge against him and he doesn't know why. Um, so he's in the hospital and everything. And when he comes out, he wants to investigate his own uh, uh, shooting. Mm. To which his boss, Joe Pantoliano, says, no, because that's the wrong thing to do. And in the audience are going, well, you're right about that. Mm-hmm. But then Will Smith decides to torture a guy in his own place of business by hitting him with hammer over and over again. And then he gets vital information. And then he goes to the, his boss and say, see, I got this vital information. The guy says, well, hmm. okay, but you're only going to consult with this younger team of people who do like police work the right way now. And then Will Smith promptly teaches those people how to run in and shoot people and get the witness murdered. And um, I feel like I'm supposed to be enjoying this, but it kind of really is an example of everything wrong with how we're portraying cops. And I know that bad boys actually has a legacy of sort of subverting some of these cop potentials because it was a a movie about black cops and Mm -hmm. we didn't have hit movies about black cops like bad boys mm. um, well, we did but they were buddy comedies well but bad boys is buddy comedy as well but well, like they, they were buddy com- well I, I guess so yeah, I, well, I, but, it was these big hollywood spectacles that were making like 200 million dollars at the box mm. office and a lot of the cop movies we had were just like 
Well, we had stuff like uh, uh, Beverly Hills Cop and Forty Eight Hours. Yeah, mixed and, 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 and white and, and a weapon, a yeah. white guy and a black guy, and that was mm. they were uh, there to that, that was and that was the formula for yeah, a lot. Exactly, one, one white cop and one black guy, and it yeah. was an att- it was an attempt to sort of explore racial tensions within mm. uh, a microcosm, and then you have uh, Bad Boys, where we no longer need that; we can just focus on black cops and. There was some good stuff, especially I think in the first Bad Boys, and the second one is absolutely crazy. But I don't know if I could take the second Bad Boys at all now because I'm just watching this. I'm like, this is just kind of irresponsible, <laughs> and I realize that it's not my job to say whether or not it's irresponsible. It is my job to say whether or not it is in good taste because that's what film criticism is. It's like mm. this is something that is palatable, enjoyable, likable, interesting, worth consuming with your brain. And I'm watching Bad Boys for Life, and I'm like, there's some neat stuff in here. Again, it's very, very pretty. The actors are all quite good. The action sequences are very, very cool. But I'm not enjoying it, because it just comes across as unpleasant after you finally come to terms with the fact that there are systemic problems, not just in the police, but how we've been treating them in popular culture. And Bad Boys, over time, has kind of become emblematic of that at least as of this film and probably going back yeah. further I didn't have time to rewatch them uh, well, what, before I did this what I find curious is uh, it's been over a full year since we've had an Avengers film and, and what a year it's been uh <laughs> Which means when there's constantly like new superhero films uh, yeah. in in the popular consciousness we're not ta- like we're constantly talking about them yet we're not typically stopping to discuss the long-term ramifications of these because there's always something new being added to the conversation. Uh, During the pandemic and during these protests and when all the theaters have been closed, the superhero films have been gone from the conversation and now the conversation is starting to to earnestly be had in some critical corners about how superhero films actually serve that same function where they're essentially cop propaganda. Hmm. Copaganda. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, what is Batman if not a cop? Yeah. Batman's a cop who works with the, the PD and, like, and, punches and, the disenfranchised and throws them into an asylum that isn't curing them. And thank, and thank goodness he's, mm. like, on our side and he's on, like, the moral side. And mm. But one could argue that, is he really? No, he's because, on his side. Yeah, if you yeah. think about it, and these kinds of stories about cops that have to, like, go rogue or break the rules or mm. hurt people. Like there's a whole subplot here where Martin Lawrence vows not to hurt people. Okay. He like, he like his best friend is in the hospital. He prays to God. He says, God, I know I've done bad things. We've, we've killed people in the line of duty. He does that line from true lies, but they were all bad, which yeah, mm. I'm sure God is fine with. And, um, he's, he says, if, if you save my friend, I vow, I will do no more violence. Mm. And he retires after that. And the whole thing is Will Smith trying to like find his way on his own. And then eventually Martin Lawrence gets dragged back into it. And there's a whole bit where they're on a motorcycle and Martin Lawrence is in a sidecar that happens to have a Gatling gun on it. And I'm like, sure. And Will Smith is telling him to shoot the guy in front of them. And Martin Lawrence says, no, I promised God I wouldn't. Well, God, he, And Will Smith says, well, who do you think gave you that gun? God gave you that gun. Mm. And I'm like, that is a really fucked up thing <laughs> to make like your heroes say. It's that I am, God has decided that I live outside the rules and I am allowed mm. to kill. And I'm watching this, I'm like, I want to enjoy, I like action movies. I think there just needs to be a justification for the violence. And it just feels like, as cool as it is to see Will Smith and Martin Lawrence together again, they're fun actors, I like them both. 
Um, I, you know, I'm happy to like revere them in a movie where they play heroes, but it feels like here they have just sunken into the quagmire. They are just not that heroic anymore. They well, actually the, come across rather corrupt and villainous. Well, when when was the first Bad Boys? Ninety five. It was, it was there, a yeah. while ago. Yeah. So, and if they're still, they're essentially just sort of milking it. They're trying to sure. get the same vibe from a, a 1995 film. Yeah, where we were making films differently back then. We had different attitudes about different things in 1995 than we do do in 2020. Yeah. So, of course, it feels kind of dated and backwards. But it feels dated for this year, is my but, point. Yeah. Like, like seriously, like, again, we should have been having these conversations more. And, I, you know... And they were being had, just not earnestly. There openly, were a lot... Yeah. There was a lot of times where we'd just be like, oh, yeah, but it harkens back to this kind of fun era of action movies. And I'm just like, yeah, it's just not fun anymore, is it? Like, it's really not. Like, we can't even pretend that it's fun right now. And there might come a time when we can, like, pull back and tr- maybe enjoy these things on a superficial level. But when all we're doing is talking about the actual impact this kind of media has on how we have come to basically accept corruption and yeah. violence from our police, when really we should have done no such thing ever. Yeah. I can't like chuckle at it anymore. It just doesn't seem entertaining. And uh, yeah, as a result, I'm 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 frustrated because I feel like if this game, if I'd seen this in January, I might have enjoyed it. And then I would have been pretty ashamed of that now. <laughs> yeah, um yeah. so again, I, I see why a lot of people liked it. And again, if you saw it in January, yeah, maybe it was fun, but like I man, mm. it is a hard sit to this month. Like it is not easy to watch right now. Anyway. Yeah, well, he, here's the thing. Uh, I remember um, the uh, after the World Trade Center attacks, yeah. there was a lot of talk about how are we going to enjoy action films again because you used to have so much fun with destruction. Yeah, I mean, like, like, like blowing up the White House and the, was the poster of Independence yeah, Day. It was people, like, we people, promised. People cheered. We're going to blow yeah. up the White House. Great. Woo. I remember when the preview came out, everybody was just psyched to see the destruction of the White House. Yeah, because it was mm. an idea. There was, there was no reality to that to yeah, connect it to. And now after 9-11... Not fun yeah, at all. It, it wasn't that much fun. It never really of, should have been. A lot but of our you action. Can't even pretend. There were still action thrillers, but they were a lot more terse yeah. or uh, more uh, grounded for a while. Yeah, uh, like I, I think the prime example of what we were wrestling with at the time is the movie Die Another Day, the James Bond movie, mm. where the first half he's getting tortured. Yeah. Because and you know he's like growing a beard, and this is like oh god, I, the world has just gone. <laughs> the beard really isn't the most important. Well, part. just I'd, like he's he's grown a beard, and he's all grizzled, and he's yeah. been like ripped apart heart by all these yeah. torturers for a long time and of course they they bring him back and they put him in the suit and he's totally okay because there's no ptsd at all for james bond no just give him an invisible uh, car and he's fine yeah but but it's like really dark and heavy and serious for that first part thinking what what do we do with james bond now when the world is just full of destruction and torture and then they like sawed off the logical end of that movie and they stuck on Batman and Robin. Yeah, really like, goofy stuff. For the rest of that and then film. there's a bad guy with like diamonds embedded in his face and there's an invisible car. They thought they could have their cake and eat it too. And yeah. they could not. Yeah, so, they just could not. so that we, movie doesn't we tr- work. We tried to do both, but you uh you follow that line of how action movies were being made, and eventually we had enough space from the World Trade Center attacks mm. to start putting that iconography directly back into the action movies. 
as a dramatic indicator of how serious the destruction really was, even if it was a stupid fantasy film. And I'm thinking of Man of Steel. Well, Man of Steel where, or Avengers both or, have yeah, these Avengers, big giant attacks on New where, York. Yeah, where they're yeah. where they're trashing a bunch of buildings, and you know, I think Avengers tried to take the curse off of it, saying, "Oh no, we we evacuated everybody. All those buildings are empty." Yeah. Or I or I, I remember the. The most egregious example of that was in uh, Captain America Civil War, where they have that awesome big tarmac fight. Yeah. But they they made a big point of saying, no, no, this is a part of the airport that's under construction, and there's no people there, and there's only one plane, but it's not a real plane, so if they wreck stuff, it's not a big a big deal. I'm, but here, but you got to ask yourself, uh-huh. why was it necessary to do that? Because if you didn't do that, you might be distracted by the potential collateral damage that mm. these so-called heroes are responsible exactly. for, and so you can't enjoy them they, fighting they each had, other. They had to change the context of what yeah. they were doing a little bit. There are ways, so I'm I think, wondering, to do these, this uh, kind of action movie where the heroes actually feel like they're in the right. You don't need Will Smith taking a mallet and breaking a guy's knuckles just because he's disrespecting him and not giving him the name of like an informant or something. Mm. You don't need that. That's really far. It's really far. I'm guessing we're not going to have fun, brave cop movies for a while, or if we are, they're going to be few and far between and probably pretty harshly criticized. Mm -hmm. But or hopefully handled if, delicately. If, which if we follow that arc long enough, are we going to have a Man of Steel version of this, where we're going to have? I'm going to try. Yeah, we're going to have a serious a serious story about like police racism and corruption as the background climax for like a superhero film. Oh, it's only a matter of time. Yeah. Every single like long running franchise tries to connect to something semi relevant eventually. And they mm. often whiff it. I mean, you look at something like, um, fast and furious where the whole plot of Hobbs and Shaw is, Oh no, global warming. We have to stop the people who care about it from doing bad things. <laughs> that's right. And I'm oh, like, God, that's right. That's not mm. responsible in the slightest. What the fuck? What? And that was multiple films that year did that where the bad guys were like, yes, we're worried that climate change is going to destroy us all. So we have to destroy us faster. And then the whole thing is the heroes have to stop the bad guys from doing something about global warming. And then they never actually solve the problem of climate change. That happened in Godzilla, King of the Monsters. That happened in Hobbs and Shaw. Happened in something else, I forget. But, like, it's not... I see what you're getting at. You're trying to be topical. But you can't make it light and fun the way you want to. Mm. You just can't. Or, like, when Spectre tried to throw in, like, this thing about the Patriot Act. Way too late, by the way. (laughs) Like, way afterwards. But, like, the idea of online surveillance is very, very real. And it's still a very real issue. That was actually more of a Snowden thing that they were responding to. Mm. But... Yeah, Spectre just kind of throws that in the background. That's not even the point of the movie. They just thought that this kind of bullshit side subplot would have weight if it sounded like the Edward Snowden shit. Mm. Yeah, you gotta find a way to do it deftly. And if you're gonna be a throwback, you have to find a way to make the stuff that used to seem fun Mm -hmm. to some people fun now. And I'm not convinced Bad Boys for Life did that, especially after all we've been through this year. Like, it just, you you just can't shut off your brain. There's no possible way, I think. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm glad I didn't see it. I didn't really want no, to. No, you would have. It was just one that slipped me by. Even even in January, you would have hated this. This is just not your film. This is just mm. unbridled machismo. Mm. It's not your bag. No, I would no, I would no. be very surprised if you dug it. <laughs> I'd be very well, surprised. But you know, things surprise me all the time. 
This this is the year I didn't like a Hirokazu Koreeda film, but did like a Michael Bay film. So this, this, everything's upside down. Right well, now. Uh, so I over this week was educated finally about mm. Bad Boys for Life. You, on the other hand, had a bad education. I sure did. What a graceful transfer uh, tra- transition. Hey, I didn't there. go um, shelf life to Bad Boys for Life. I, did, I ignored that one. I suppose you could. Have. I could have. I was gonna, and then yeah. I forgot. Uh, bad Education is currently on HBO. Uh, it was released earlier this year. It got a lot of uh, acclaim, and it was one of those films that I kind of wish I saw. And now that I've seen it, I well, I saw it. Uh, oh, this is one of those ones people were really raving about when it came out, too. Yeah, it it's, tells the true story of a, a high school in... Let me look up the actual location. Um, you can do it. It's, it's in uh, Long Island. Ah, it's a, a real true story of a, a real high school in Long Island where uh, one of the superintendents of the school, uh, it was revealed that she was using the school's credit card to buy a school, like to buy uh, home building supplies for her own house. Ah. And she was like trying to build a very extravagant home using the school's budget. And that was a bit of a scandal. She had actually like built the school out of tens of thousands of dollars. And the principal of the school... Uh, in the movie, that character is played by uh, Allison Janney, who mm. is... I, I want to see Allison Janney in everything. I want to see her play everyone. Uh, you know they're making that Godzilla <laughs> movie? Just put Allison Janney... Just get a 200-foot-tall Allison Janney to fight King Kong. Please. That's what I want to see. Yeah. Can Hugh Jackman mm. play King Kong? Sure. Okay. Yeah, and Hugh Jackman plays the principal uh, of this school. She uh, He discovers her crimes and, dis- and convinces the other teachers to keep it a secret, not to report it to the police, because... If they do, it will look like they actually committed fraud and they won't get funding for the school anymore. And they actually have this big, uh, elaborate, multi-million dollar project about building a bridge around the school in the pipeline. And they want to keep their jobs. So they say, well, we're not going to tell them about too much fraud, but we are going to fire her. We're going to fire Allison Janney. But a plucky young student reporter, uh, played by uh, uh, Geraldine Visnawathen, Oh, I from, like her a lot. Yeah, from Blockers. Uh, Blockers. Yeah, she's great. Excuse me, v- Viswanathan. Uh, I mispronounced her name. Geraldine Viswanathan plays this a plucky young reporter who discovers that something a little off is going on with the school's finances because it's still a matter of record. And she, trying to prove herself as a young plucky reporter, decides to start putting some things together. She finds some stack of stacks of papers and finds that Allison Janney wasn't the only one doing that. In fact, many of the teachers have been doing that to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. Ugh. And these teachers were actually like taking taxpayer money, pouring it into the school budget, and then just buying nice things for themselves. Ugh. In fact, uh, and this is all a matter of record, but it's revealed that uh, the Hugh Jackman character, who is a widower, uh, turns out he's been paying for his common law husband's apartment in New York City with the school budget. They've been setting up all of these shell companies to charge stuff to so they can swindle even more money. It's this huge case of fraud that was actually wow. going on. And the fun part of this is, you know, it's it's a movie where we just get to watch the, the House of Cards fall over yeah. and, and just how bad it, it really got. And, you know, with each new revelation, how bad the, it's, it's, the spending sounds really like was. a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't have that same kind of quirky vibe, though. It's more... It's more a little earnest, a little, a little more straightforward. Mm. It's from the director of Thoroughbreds, which I didn't see. Nor I. But this one has a this one has sort of the mainstream version of Gus Van Sant feeling to it. 
you know, when, when Gus Van Sant goes Hollywood. Because <laughs> we do have two Gus Van Sants. No, no, that's very, very yeah. fair. Like the Gus Van Sant, what was that movie he did with John Krasinski and Matt Damon? Oh, it was like Promised Land, I think? Yeah, the yeah. Promised Land. He made this like really hokey, like faux Capra-esque story about fracking and a guy who comes to this town to sell people on fracking and a guy who comes to this town to sell people like and a guy who's like trying to fight him and start a grassroots campaign and about how Matt Damon might see the light about fracking Mm. and it's written by Matt Damon and John Krasinski like it's actually got like a pretty good pedigree (laughs) and it's just fine like it's it's not bad Mm. but it's not memorable or but yeah I, Gus Van Sant can really just turn on the commercial work if he needs to and he's done a few just broadly commercial very touching movies I would say but then occasionally he wants to experiment to do something like Jerry or Last Days or Elephant uh, you know films where they're just going to put a camera behind a kid and force him to walk down a hallway for 15 straight minutes with no dialogue uh, this is very much Hollywood Gus Van Sant-esque where it feels like we're just telling the story and get it kind of getting out of it out of our way. It's got a light tone, but it's pretty straightforward. Uh, the and of course the big uh, the big reveal is that the person who broke the even though it made it to national newspapers eventually the person who broke the story was the teenage reporter. And I hope she got a Pulitzer. She did. Uh, she did not, but she did get credit in the movie for being the one who actually broke the story. I, it just yeah. it feels like if you're a high school reporter and you crack like mm-hmm. a multi million dollar fraud scandal. Yeah. You should get something for that. There should be a special award for that, like yeah, some she, kind of to, fanciness. And, and to, to give full credit, uh, the, the young reporter's name is uh, Rachel Bargava, and I don't know what happened to Rachel Bargava. So is it, so is it good, though? I mean, it's, just, uh, it's, is it it's genuinely it, good? It, it's good, it's enjoyable, it's, it's okay. functional, it's distracting, it's kind why of you, forgettable, frankly. Why do you think people were, were like, what, what people were connecting well, to so strongly when it came there's, out? Uh, there's a few wonderful scenes between Hugh Jackman and Alice and Janney, who are, mm. like, just chemistry machines. Yeah, Both great. of them can get along with anybody on screen. Yeah, we don't give enough credit to Hugh Jackman. He is a really good actor. Like, he's, yeah, we, yeah. he gets stuck in similar roles a lot, but, like... You put him in anything, he will bring it. He's—I've mm-hmm. never seen him half-ass anything. No, no, yeah. no. He's—he's he's really, really a professional. And watching, there are a few scenes early in the movie where he and and uh, Alice and Janney are just sort of having conversations, and and I love it when actors can pull this off. You feel like they've known each other for like decades, uh, yeah. Yeah. where they've actually been friends for a really long time, and they have a really good rapport. It's and super important. They tell a few kind of in-jokes, and their body language tells a lot, and you can tell that it's just because those two actors are so good, and they're so good at reading one another, that yeah. just that chemistry is irresistible. Yeah, you can always, even if you can't pick up on why you're not believing something, it's mm. like, you know who I actually think of when I think of this, are people who, like, in un- weird circumstances, pulled off the, we've known each other forever. Mm. Han Solo and Chewbacca. <laughs> You're watching and, Star Wars. And Chewbacca's just, just a guy in a suit. He's not a guy who's like growling and stuff, but the the physical acting is pretty convincing. And Harrison Ford knows how to have a one sided conversation. Mm. And it's just like, yeah, I buy that these guys have been together for years, mm. and they they have like a shorthand, and like they know each other super well, and it it matters. Mm. It sells the reality of something, which is especially important in fantasy sci fi. But even in drama, like you can it can really sink a scene, and something's hard to even picture like yeah, what yeah. is wrong with this scene it should be fine so yeah the the acting is good the tension is good it's it's you know just good solid three star kind of movie yeah. i i'm not sure why it was getting the acclaim it did mm. uh there's it doesn't seem like it's tapping into something really relevant at the time as if it's timely uh, as yeah. critics like to say it's not blowing the lid off of some sort of 
parallel scandal that's going on in America right now. I worry sometimes that we're going to like look back on this era and we're going to realize that maybe because competition was kind of slim, mm. maybe we were a little overly kind on some things. Like I'm sure I, mean, I didn't see bad education. You say it's a good movie. I'm glad to hear it. Mm. Maybe the fact that it seemed wonderful was because we weren't distracted by a lot of high end movies that were being made on a similar level. That's for true. Well, and I'm wondering how much of uh, we as critics tend to heap praise on smaller indie films. Cause I know we do this mm. uh, because they are the alternative. We have to, shout out the smaller smaller voices because they're not getting talked about whereas yeah. the big uh blockbusters are the ones dominating the conversation so yeah. we tend to be take, a little more loud we're, we're like praise, uh, yeah. we're like yeah like 110 percent behind certain things well, because we want to make sure that people know we're talking about and that's the thing i think that i think sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap of seeming hyperbolic mm. i think the issue shouldn't be that we're telling people that and maybe it is the best movie ever made i haven't seen it but like we shouldn't be like necessarily going all out and saying that it's amazing. What we should be saying is just what we're saying louder and more often mm. so that movies don't slip through the cracks as easily when they are genuinely good. Um, but then again, maybe it's maybe just people saw this movie and saw something you didn't and loved it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it really is amazing and I'll watch it and I'll pick up on it mm. and I'll slap you silly and I'll just per- be like, you moron. Per- you, you didn't have a damn idea what you were talking about. Or maybe I'm just spoiled by uh, Latter-day Spielberg, who's making mm-hmm. films that are about historical dramas that speak very directly to current day dramas. Mm-hmm. Lincoln uh, is, you know, it's about emancipation and it's about President Lincoln, about all of the drama that went into the courts and the actual arguments to get uh, uh, the 14th Amendment passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... One could also say that it, or excuse me, 13th Amendment. Yeah, I was about to yeah, say. Wrong I, Amendment. I was taking uh, a second because I was like, is there an amendment I forgot? What happened? Wrong Amendment. I okay. apologize. That was my mistake. Okay. The 13th Amendment. Thank you. Fixing my history there. Yeah. Uh, but one could also see that uh, as a parallel to uh, gay rights and gay marriage that was very mm-hmm. much in the news at the time. Yep. Uh, it, it reads, is yeah. my point. Yeah, the Post was the yeah. same way, where yeah, it was very po- much about speaking truth to power at a mm. time when we were worried yeah, about that's... the news's ability to do that, and we're still worried about that. That movie hasn't gotten less relevant. No, I think the, yeah. the, the Post was like the first important movie of the Trump age, yeah. quite frankly. Uh, and, but it uh, might have been come out so quickly that people weren't ready for the message yet. I, I, the, I was ready. I, I like that movie. It's Spielberg. It's a little heavy-handed, but it's still good. It's still really good. I, yeah. I, maybe it's because I've aged with him, but I yeah. do prefer Latter-day Spielberg. He's like not doing action Spielberg because he's actually like thinking about what he's doing. He's doing some amazing stuff. That said, yeah. action Spielberg is still pretty fucking awesome. Spielberg. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah, Munich was a big turning point for him. A lot of people don't talk about Munich anymore. But uh, mm. um, anyway. Uh, so that's uh, that's bad education. That's bad education. Uh, so let's move onward from bad education mm. to onward. Oh God, you had one ready, didn't Thank you? you. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with the, for the painted bird. I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> um, onward was the new Pixar movie that was supposed to be one of the year's big blockbusters because it's a new Pixar movie, and they pretty much always are. And then Onward came out one week before everything closed down. But people had already been paying attention to the news, and they weren't eager to go see it in theaters, and it had a very small opening weekend, Mm. especially for Pixar. And that was one of the early indicators that, oh, this is going to be bad. Like, this (laughs) is, like, this is, people don't want to go out to the movies right now. Like, we're going to have this, we're going to have to reschedule and shut things down. And um, when Onward can have a big opening weekend, 
big Pixar movie, family-friendly, lots of cool fantasy stuff. Man, this is not going to be good. And so Disney ended up putting Onward on Disney Plus pretty quick, actually. Kudos hmm. to them for seeing the writing on the wall and realizing that people... What they needed to do. Well, I mean, yeah. Disney Plus was just coming out, so it helped them as well to sort of sell the service to more people. But it also got a kids movie out there when a lot of kids were home from school and just wanted something new. I get it. I wish the movie was better. You don't like you don't like Warner. I, thought Warner? That I, I don't dislike it. It's right. it's okay. Mm. It's okay, but it's kind of just okay for mm. me. Like okay. I kind of there's little bits that I like in it, but I actually found it rather frustrating in a lot of ways. And I don't think that they really thought out the fundamental premise as well as they could have. So uh, for onward, if anyone is just catching up with it as well. Uh, it takes place in a world where there used to be magic and wizards and unicorns and things, and then eventually people turn their back on magic because science was easier. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, te- I, te- technology. Yeah, like, technology is easier. They're like, oh, casting could... a spell to light your, your hovel was yeah. really difficult. You had to be trained yeah. in the magical arts. Or you could flip a light switch. Yeah, but they when they started wiring their houses with electricity... So much easier. Yeah, which is fine. That's a that's a perfectly like okay setup. But now all of these fantastical creatures live in a contemporary urban setting, yeah, suburban and, setting specifically. Yeah, yeah, but we also see the city, and um, and that's kind of it, really. So like, there are still unicorns, but they're like they're raccoons, like, and they're just sort of knocking over garbage cans, um, which is a funny image, I'll grant you. Um, and the story is about uh, two... They're elves? Elves, they're yeah. Elves. Blue, blue elves with pointy yeah. ears. Uh, the story about these two elves, they're brothers, older brother, younger brother. The younger brother just turned 16, and their mother gives them a gift from their dad. It's that dad, who, dad died. The implication is cancer, I believe. Mm. Um, and he wanted you both to have this gift when you were both old enough. And the gift is a magical staff that can actually wield magic. And he wrote a spell for them that allows him to come back from the dead for one day. So they can see see how they've grown up and they can have a tearful reunion with dad and they can hang out together one time, which is a really beautiful idea. It's not for one day. It's uh, they can bring him back and, but he's going to vanish again at like a very specific time at sunset. It's the next sunset. So there's a a race against time. It's a race against time, but he's basically fun. Functionally. It's one day. Mm. Um, problem is, is that they, no one does magic anymore and they kind of whiff the spell and they only bring back the lower half of their dad. Yeah, from the waist down. What a fun, that's a fun, I love all of that. That's a fun premise. I wish they did more with the comedic possibilities of only hanging out with the lower half of somebody, but still walking around. Like, I feel like if Buster Keaton could have figured out the technology, the gags Buster <laughs> Keaton could have come up with for this, but like the legs, like walking in front of people and like mm. coming, forming like different like types of, there's so many different things you could have done. And they kind of don't care about that. Like there's a well, bit like, here and there, uh, but it's more about these two brothers. One of whom is sort of the like lay about dungeons and dragons, drives a wrecked van, listens to heavy metal, uh, uh, you know, shiftless brother who knows all about magic because he's been studying Dungeons and Dragons or quests of yore. And uh, he's going to take his brother on a quest in order to get a Phoenix gem so that they can finish the spell and get the rest of their dad back and actually spend some time with him. And it ends up being a big old quest, but everything is very like uh, metropolitan now and all of the things that should be pretty simple. Like, oh, we have to go to the Manticore and ask for a magic map. But the Manticore now runs a family restaurant and has forgotten her, mm. her like, where her she came calling, from. Yeah. Her true calling. 
I see where you're coming from. It's I get I get the joke on onward, and I I reviewed this on the show earlier. I remember. So, yeah. Uh, my my concern was that it was too clean. Mm. Uh, it's a Pixar film, and so they're going to make the animation really really slick. Uh, even though this is clearly born of a Ralph Bakshi. St- style of mind yeah where people are driving you know wrecked vans and talking about fantasy stuff and they're all just elves it's born out of gary gygax both the Mm. dungeons and dragons books that were invented as well as the people who played them yeah you know nerdy teens like Mm. let's just let's just call it what it is nerdy teens that's fine nothing wrong with being a nerdy wastoid metalhead in this case also that's but the thing is and i love that the movie has affection for that and that the movie Mm. understands that when you look to fantasy, art, media, storytelling, whatever aspect of it you enjoy, and you get inspiration from that to do good things, mm-hmm. there's it's, it becomes noble. Like you, you can't like say like, oh, he's wasting his life. No, he's extracting wonderful lessons and he's using it to bond with his brother. There's nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful, and I like that. There's affection for that. I just feel like. I think you're right. It is very, very clean, and it doesn't have any of that sort of... um, It doesn't feel real. It feels a little contrived. Um, But it also just feels like they really didn't plan it out for me. Like, what's the fundamental metaphor of there used to be magic and now there's not? Mm. Were were people more pure of spirit back in the day? Were... uh, Have we lost something with the invention of technology and we need to go back to a more... Agrarian way of living, uh, re- respect for the earth, respect for the earth. But they don't—they never get into any of that. The only thing that they end up doing is having the older brother character, who's played by uh, Chris Pratt, and and even uh, our hero, played by um, Spider Man. Uh, yeah, Spider Tom Holland. Tom Holland. I always got to remember who was the director of Friday Night. Tom Holland. Tom that's Holland. who it was. <laughs> the other Tom Holland. Yeah, weird. Um, what they end up doing is they end up like meeting people who have like sort of and they end up sort of berating them about how you've you've lost touch with your roots manticore you've lost touch with your roots pixies and there's something like these guys are dicks <laughs> like the movie ends up siding with them but that doesn't mean that they're not like presumptuous and condescending I, I, and I, look, I, the, I find it just like I, I don't think it's very well thought out in terms of like how they're trying to sort of heal this world with their goodness it's not like Wally, where like this chaos element breaks a system that has been keeping people trapped in like a sort of mental and physical stasis for all yeah. this time and it forces them to come out of their bubble these people are doing their shit these people are like going about their lives and then just two entitled kids come in and just says, you should live your life the way we want you to. And everyone's like, oh, that would be better. What? <laughs> what a weird, weird it's, sort of thing to keep falling back on over a, and over it's again. It's about how the suburb- suburban milieu has robbed our lives of passion. That's a very common theme it's in a, a lot of movies. But that's the other thing that I, hmm. that I ended up not really connecting with is hmm. that it seems just kind of straightforward. Yeah, you know, it's, well, it's, it's, which it's, is fine. It's, it's fine. Yeah. I just, you know, and I think Pixar may have raised the bar a little high sometimes. Okay. Where something like Onward feels like just kind of conventional. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of really wonderful incidental stuff. There's some really good, like, um, I guess you call it production design, the mm. overall look of some of the things in the world. There's a there's a monster that shows up towards the end, which has a really fun design. Yeah. Like, I really, really like the design. I, I went, ooh, <laughs> that's fun. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a connection to the main character's high school, which I think could have been strengthened up. That, yeah. Like, you need another draft of the script. Maybe there's a scene that was missing. Maybe. 
Um, but there's a lot of things like I love how um, the last moment with dad is handled without giving anything I, away. I, I thought like that the, was a really beautiful mm. use of restraint. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's a checklist in the movie where uh, mm. uh, the Tom Holland character is like checking off things he wants mm. to do. And there's a sort of a climax involving that checklist that actually yeah. got me a little bit. I can appreciate yeah. that. And I think, um, you know, it, it, a lot of the story is about this. Yeah, okay, we're going to bond with dad, but it's actually an opportunity for these two very different brothers to bond. Mm. There's something that I feel gets a little lost in here, which is as this, like, you know, guy who has no meaningful problems to speak of. He's a little socially awkward, but he's not even really an introvert. He's just not good at talking to people right now. What a horrible life he leads. Um, it's that he's he's got to, like, figure out a way to sort of bond with his brother who is seen as kind of a loser. Neither of them seem to be particularly appreciative of the fact that their mom is a fucking rock star. Like, yeah, I mean, she's, she's not like literally a rock star. She's, but she's raising them. She's getting, you know, she's, she's taking care of their needs. She's emotionally there for them. She gets a couple of like moments to herself. She gets like a subplot where she's trying to track him down with the manticore, which is fun. But like when she finally has like a cool hero moment, they actually undermine it by playing like, the funny jazzercise music that she was like working out to earlier, mm. which is well, to that's... say that she doesn't get to be cool. She gets to do a cool thing, cool. but we're going to uh, we're going to subvert it. How about so that she never gets her moment? How about cool looks different when you're a a forty five year old mom than when you're a seventeen year old boy? Okay, but who is this movie made for? Kids, exactly. And their parents and their parents, but I think when you're trying to convey to kids yeah. the, the important to appreciate your family, that when you undermine, you know, the coolness value of the one, like you know, mm. woman character in your family, I think they whiffed the moment. It's oh. not. It didn't destroy I it. I think they whiffed it a little. I think they whiffed it a little. I think they whiffed it a little bit. But um, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. I like the clever use of magic. I think they come up with like fun rules for magic, and they find ways to sort mm. of. Um, you know, play by those rules, but find unexpected uses for the spells the heroes learn and everything like that. So there's a lot of really fun stuff in it, but ultimately I was a little underwhelmed. I was just sort of like, oh, I thought that could have been told a little better. I, I thought it was really, really good. Uh, I, I think what it needs is sex and violence, quite frankly. I think to, <laughs> it needs to really to feel a little, I'll give it a little, little edge, a little metal, know? yeah, a little heavy metal, a little, little more, a little yeah. more metal. Yeah. If the, if the Chris Pratt character was constantly cussing, it just would have. Lent a little bit more flavor to the, to I, the movie. I feel like the Chris Pratt character was like originally written with Jack Black in mind. With the, <laughs> and I think Jack Black would have brought that sort of just like I know I'm a dork, but I believe in metal, and metal is and should be dangerous. Yeah, yeah. So I think Jack Black understands that, and maybe that sort of vibe. Because I think Chris Pratt is just playing that character is just aggressively friendly, mm. and that's not bad. But it takes kind of the edge off of a story that is rooted in other stories that actually had an edge. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. So I'm, so glad, now, I'm glad you caught up with a Pixar film. Same. I, same. Yeah, and uh, I, I understand I'm actually kind of on the in the minority and how much I liked Onward. Yeah, I know enough. a lot of people are just like, yeah, that's Again, okay. I, 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 really, I really enjoyed Onward. I don't dislike it. I wouldn't but, say it's Pixar's worst film by any stretch of the imagination. And we still have at least two Cars films that meet that bill. But um, yeah, just... It didn't quite do it for me, but it's not bad. It's not bad, and I did enjoy it. Um, um, and um, something, 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 Painted Bird. Well, we've gone onward, so let's go downward. Uh, In a good way? Uh, no. 
Oh no! <laughs> because the Painted Bird is one of the most aggressively miserable films I've ever experienced. You loved it, didn't you? We're talking like Lars von Trier territory. And you loved it, In terms it, didn't of you? human suffering. You loved it. You loved it with every uh, fiber of your being. I liked it. Um, <laughs> How did I misread those signals? This is a, a Czech film directed by uh, Vaclav Marhul, uh, and it takes place in uh, sort of the countryside of Eastern Europe uh, during World War II. Yeah. Uh, in... Parts of the uh, of the mostly for the most part, the film takes place in parts of the country that aren't being directly affected by the war. But of course, the cloud of hate and murder is just floating over everything. And uh, it's essentially uh, Ohazard Balthazar if Balthazar was like a twelve-year-old boy. You need to explain oh. what Ohazard Balthazar is to someone. Ohazard Balthazar, right come on, they know Ohazard Balthazar. <laughs> come on, uh, Ohazard Balthazar is uh, one of the best films ever made. It's directed by Robert Brasson, and it's uh, often called a Christian metaphor about a donkey. Balthazar is a donkey, and uh, how Balthazar passes from owner to owner, just sort of witnessing and bearing the brunt of their misery, kind of absorbing all of their pain and uh, moving on to the next owner just to absorb more, more pain. Mm. It's uh, you know, very, very uh, clearly a metaphor for martyrdom. Uh, I'm not really sure if the painted bird is about martyrdom, but it's definitely about suffering. Okay. Uh, the opening scene of the film features this young boy being chased through the woods by some bullies. They knock him to the ground. They beat him savagely in the face. They take his pet ferret and they light it on fire. Jesus Christ. First scene of the movie. And and we get to see it burn and die. Oh my God, that's yeah. horrible. I mean, it's an actual ferret? No, they didn't actually kill a ferret oh God, in the movie. Okay. No, Jesus. No, um, I'm getting I'm getting freaked out just hearing you describe the plot. Do I need to leave the room for this? Well, maybe. Oh, uh, he uh, he goes back to uh, and and the film is essentially just like this picaresque about how he loses his home and has to drift in sort of this nine chapter structure from caretaker to caretaker. There's not a lot of dialogue. Uh, when there is, it's um, mostly in uh, inter Slavic languages that I didn't mm. really uh, understand. And yeah, it, it starts out where he's being taken care of after he's, he's dropped off, at, like, I think it's his grandmother's house and his grandmother is really cantankerous. And he wakes up in the middle of the night and finds that she's dead. She's just sitting up in a chair. She's dead, staring out the window. And he's so startled by the fact that he's that she's dead that he drops his candle and burns the house down. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> he wanders out into the countryside. Uh, he falls into the care of one miserable caretaker after the other, uh, some of whom are played by some recognizable actors. Uh, he falls in with Udo Kier, who is so disgusted by the way other men look at his pretty wife that in one scene he spoons out a guy's eyes. Uh, okay. Uh, then he wanders into the care of uh, just one abusive dickhead after another. Uh, an animals are... Uh, he's... Uh, Starts caring after some animals, and we get to uh, with one of his caretakers, and this is where we get the title of the film. Uh, we learn that uh, if you paint a bird and you let it fly, uh -huh. it'll fly up among uh, the a cloud of other birds, and the other birds will essentially peck it to death in midair, and it will plummet to the earth dead. Uh, he falls in with a witch at one point who feels that he's a vampire, but that's good for her business. But in order to cure him, she has some pretty weird uh, home remedies. She buries him up to his neck, and uh, he's awakened when crows begin picking at his scalp and making him all bloody. Cool. Um, 
And it goes on like that for three hours. Great. It's a three hour. It's a two two hour and 50 minute film. Uh, Now there's, there's a a certain kind of film, you know, misery porn, we call it where uh, that just sort of takes a certain amount of nihilistic glee in watching characters suffer. And I think Lars von Trier is sort of the master of that. Uh, Lars von Trier loves to tell stories of human misery and suffering because uh, he's wrestling with depression, rather openly so. He's made movies about how he's wrestling with depression. He made a movie called Melancholia, where depression was envisioned as a planet that's crashing into the earth, destroying everything. Yeah. Uh, His metaphors aren't subtle. No. (laughs) That's very fair. Yes, that's... Yes, agree. But what Lars von Trier has is kind of a, a provocateur quality, like he's trying to come across as a little bit of a bad boy. He's rubbing your nose in filth to make you feel pain to seem like he's uh, edgy or mm. or a little bit impish in a way. The Painted Bird feels a little bit more like a fable. It doesn't have that impish quality. Uh, it is just a long... And very carefully constructed and very beautifully photographed fable about the true bottomlessness of human cruelty. Mm. How there's this philosophy where, well, things couldn't get any worse. What's to make you think that things couldn't get any worse? Because things can always get worse. Is there a point to that, though, beyond just illustrating it? Why do you assume that a film has to give us hope? I didn't say hope. Okay. I didn't say hope. I want to make that clear. Mm. I'm not asking for hope. Okay. It'd be nice, but I'm not asking for it. Mm. If it is just misery for its own sake, uh-huh. it feels sort of in, sort of self-indulgent. Like, oh, how miserable can I make this? And we've all no. seen movies that are basically just, how gross oh. can we be? How mean mm. can we be? Yeah. How, how cruel can we be? And when I f- feel at the end of it that I didn't go on this journey for a purpose, that a oh. point was trying to be made of some kind, that I can get something out of, hope, or, well, the, hope may be relevant. Even cynicism can mm. have value. Like, is does it feel directed in some way as though well, it has I, a purpose? It, it No, it definitely has a purpose. And uh, I don't feel like it's a... This is going to be a weird thing to say about a film like The Painted Bird, but I don't think its, it's uh, philosophy is that of cynicism. You're talking about these films that are like really trying to provoke and try to gross you out. And those are uh, operating from a kind of adolescent pop nihilism. Mm. Uh, the Painted Bird is a lot more philosophical about its nihilism. It's really trying to bring to the deeper parts of your mind true agony. Mm. And I feel like that's something that uh, a more, more sort of pop provocative films don't even try for. They're just trying to shock you. This one is definitely shocking, but I feel like they're trying to make sort of a broader point about the human experience through depicting this kind of suffering. Mm -hmm. Now, you already know whether or not you're going to like this movie because it's a tough watch. And of course, it doesn't need to be two hours and 50 minutes long. Uh, I, I understand that this sort of thing cannot probably be captured in maybe an hour and 50 minutes. (laughs) You know, I'm not sure. We get the gist of it. It's bad. Things suck and stuff. And it's, but here's the weird thing. Even though it's just miserable and aggressive and it's just this litany of horror after horror, it's filmed in a very watchable way. They actually, Hmm. uh, the the filmmakers know how to point the camera away from horrors at choice moments. So A, it's 
sparing us a little bit, but B, it's keeping our eye interested. It's not just sort of pushing our noses into it. It's actually kind of graceful about the way it depicts these horrific things. Right. And throughout, you're going to run into some more familiar faces. Uh, Harvey Keitel shows up in this movie. Oh. Uh, Barry Pepper is in this movie. Oh. Uh, Julian Sands is in this movie. Yeah. Uh, and you know when Udo Kier shows up, oh no, it's Udo Kier. And Julian Sands shows up and you're like, oh fuck. <laughs> what kind of horrible thing is he going to do? Now what? And yeah, and, and we got yeah, just a, a, a litany of, of violation and uh, physical and sexual and emotional trauma that uh, just oh. befall this this poor child for uh, and and it, and it leaves off on like just a, a of course a bleak note you realize in a scene where a soldier gives him a crust of bread what a gigantic island of hope that is yeah. where he's just sitting against a tree chewing on some bread and not feeling misery for like a 5 minute period uh <sighs> I liked it. I liked okay. it because I think it's really artistically uh, daring. I think it's really okay. aggressive. I think it's a really beautiful film. It was shot on 35 millimeter film. Uh, but I understand as well that this is not the kind of film that people are going to go to typically. Mm. Uh, it's going to be a challenge even under the best of circumstances. Cool. Recommend. Well, okay, that's great. <laughs> well, let's review uh, some movies. Yeah. We review... Our movies on the critic. <coughs> Excuse me. We review movies on the critically acclaimed scale. <laughs> You're just describing this movie, right? Dude? And I, it's a little bit actually. Um, anyway, we review movies on the critically acclaimed scale uh, from C minus to C plus, where C is average. Most movies are average. Mm-hmm. You know, good, good stuff and bad stuff together. Some movies are above average. We gave those a C plus because they're definitely recommended. Maybe even truly amazing. And some movies are below average. And we don't particularly recommend those. And some of them are truly quite bad. Mm. What do you give The Painted Bird? I gave it I give it a, a high C. Okay. Uh, I, I think it is very daring and I think it's very ambitious. I think it's definitely too long. Mm. And uh, it may be so difficult that you're not going to find yourself thinking about what it's trying to get at a lot. There are some movies that actually do have a bit of a point but they're so repulsive that it's kind of hard to see it. Yeah. I'm thinking of a film like Salo, mm-hmm. uh, Pierre Paolo, Paolo Pasolini's film Salo, which is like, it has such horrible images in it that you're not really getting the, all of the fascism metaphors. Yeah. You're just distracted. Uh, by sa- the same with, same with uh, something like a Serbian film, yeah. which actually does have a lot to say about Serbian politics and the way artists are treated, but it's about really violent sexual stuff. That's really hard to watch. So, yeah. Uh, a lot of people who watch a Serbian film assume it's sort of like a geek show like The Human Centipede, which actually doesn't have anything on its mind. Not particularly, no. Yeah, okay, well, um, okay, so we go from Human Centipede to Onward. Um, Onward is the new Pixar... Onward, God, you really wrecked me, dude. <laughs> Onward is the new, is the latest Pixar movie. It's on Disney Plus now. It came out earlier this year. Whitney saw it, and I think you gave it a C plus. I think I gave it a C plus at the time. Um, I, I'm going to give it a C. It's okay. a rock solid middle middle ground C. There's so many things this movie does well. There are wonderful scenes, exchanges. Um, I really like uh, a lot of the details, but I just feel like overall, the premise and the movie's themes are not especially well developed. Uh, it feels like they're really, really close to making this more than just a buddy road trip movie, but with a little magic in it. Mm. And they never go that extra step. So instead, it just feels just okay. Uh, there are little moments which are amazing, but overall, just okay. 
Um, what was the other thing you did? The bad education. <laughs> bad education. Yeah. A C. It's okay. it's just a, a good, efficient sort of Hollywood message thriller yeah. about a, a crime scandal. Uh, bad Boys for Life. Finally catching up on that. Um, I mean, look, there's a lot of good filmmaking in here, and I actually really want to see more from these filmmakers. But the movie, it, I don't think I would have particularly like loved it back in January. But um, yeah, it's a bad time to watch this movie, <laughs> or maybe it's the perfect time to watch this movie because you realize that, w- however heroic these characters may have been betrayed, they have become part of frankly, a system of portrayal of law enforcement that is very forgiving of really bad, corrupt, violent behavior, Mm. and not in a way that feels justified by the story a lot of the time. It just, if it was, you could say like, okay, well, this one actually kind of works in spite of all that. It just kind of doesn't, and it just makes them out to be relics of a bygone era that we are mercifully free of, and yet the movie ultimately argues that, you know, the young cops who are actually trying to change the system are the ones who are wrong because they're not violent enough. I can't enjoy it. Mm. I would like to, but I can't. It's just unpleasant. Um, and then uh, Shelf Life. Shelf Life C+. Yeah. This is a wonderful oddity that I'm glad uh, you, you were able to unearth and let me yeah. know was out uh, there. All credit goes yeah. to uh, my wife, Michelle, who uh, found out this was play- playing through the American Cinematheque. Um, we watched it together. It was a real interesting journey. Uh, mm. It is still available through the American Cinematheque. It is available on Vimeo. Uh, it's for like six bucks, which is cheaper than a movie theater ticket. You know, a little expensive for like VOD for like an older movie, but it's a movie that never found an audience, never had a chance to find an audience, mm. made by a truly unique filmmaker. Uh, and um, you're not going to see anything like it this year, I think is a fair thing to say. <laughs> if we see something exactly like it this year, I will be very shocked. You're not going to see much like it, period. I, mean, I guess I we compared not. it to like Dog Tooth. Well, it's, it's got yeah. like it's got like plot overlaps, but it's definitely its own entity. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in odd indie cinema, if you love digging up films that have been basically lost to history but didn't deserve to be, definitely check out Shelf Life. It's on Vimeo now, and you can get uh, the link through American Cinematheque. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's the new releases for this week. And we still have one more to go. <laughs> oh, what a marathon, man. Um, I- I'm going to throw something <laughs> in my head. Oh, my God. <laughs> Finally inspired. Um, yeah, so this week uh, we asked, once again, as we said at the top of the, uh, top of the show, uh, we asked our patrons to pick a film that one or both of us hadn't seen that was happened to be on Crackle. And since pickings were kind of thin, there really wasn't... Um, uh, sort of a genre or anything that we went with. We just picked stuff we hadn't seen. And weirdly enough, neither of us have ever seen Marathon Man, a film that is considered a classic espionage thriller directed by John Schlesinger, starring uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman, Roy Scheider, and Sir Lawrence Olivier in an Oscar-nominated performance uh, as one of cinema's more despicable bad guys. Uh, This movie was written by William Goldman, who is considered one of the greatest screenwriters ever, and with good cause. Adapting his own novel, by the way. Oh yeah, William Goldman is, if you're not familiar with William Goldman, you've probably seen some of his movies without even realizing it. He wrote Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, he wrote All the President's Men, he wrote The Princess Bride. And if he had stopped there, 
<laughs> we would have been like, yeah, one of the greats. But then he yeah. also wrote Misery, and then he also wrote Marathon Man and Magic and and Dreamcatcher. Okay, nobody's perfect. <laughs> I actually enjoy Dreamcatcher, but it is very stupid. I, I enjoy Dreamcatcher because it's one of those things like uh, what was Roger Ebert's line? It's the kind of movie that could only come together if a lot of really talented people try to try to do something big. Yeah, yeah, like, you like, you couldn't like do this by fi- accident. A bad filmmaker couldn't have made something yeah. that bad. Yeah, it's only. Only, it's only this bad because people tried and everyone failed. <laughs> and there's something kind of glorious about that kind of misfire. Like, you can't take your eye. It's like watching Orca. Like, this is or, unbelievably terrible. Or, or death How did to, they try, though? Or, or death to Smoochie. You know, there's just... Oh, some people just genuinely like that movie. Why? It's awful. I don't know! It's, it's, it's like... It's so bad! It's like it's like unpleasant awful. Like I think it's, it's really be, hard to watch. I think it's, be, I think it's darkness is sort of just like, oh, it's dark. That makes it... That makes it good not necessarily i think no. that one's just kind of dark for its own sake but anyway um anyway Wim goldman uh, uh if you want to learn screenwriting you could do a hell of a lot worse than just reading his screenplays he's just really mm. really great at it and i was really fascinated to watch marathon man because marathon man for a film that is broadly entertaining and compelling and I just used a critic's buzzword, but just, just fascinating, wonderful characters, interesting plot. Um, this movie is structured real fucking weird. It's structured weird and it actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you start to try to put the ends together. No, it does true. not pass the fridge test. It's a, a no. big, what I expected was something actually kind of edgy and subversive. I thought this was like a little like tiny 1970s, pod boiler those off to the side this is no like a big mainstream yeah uh hollywood thriller uh and has all of the plot problems therein uh so <laughs> we can describe the elements but every little plot twist doesn't necessarily make sense like people's relationship to different there's, kind of there's organizations a lot of coincidence and contrivance yeah. there's a, and usually what happens in a movie is a lot of movies begin with like one coincidence or contrivance it's just what to get gets the, the story going? To get the ordin- the presumably ordinary human being uh, protagonist yeah. into the, the extraordinary world they're about to enter. But it Marathon Man that happens like four times separately and it's really fucking weird. So I'm going to try my best to walk you through up until the inciting incident of the movie. The part of the movie which typically in an average screenplay will occur around page 10 or 15. Mm. In Marathon Man, it happens an hour in. Uh, (laughs) Dustin Hoffman is a history student in New York City. He's also training to run a marathon. Uh, He meets uh, uh, a young woman at a light... Also, he has a dark past. He has a dark past. His dad uh, uh, was... uh, uh, He was ousted by the McCarthy here. Yeah, I was trying to figure out why the phrase And committed suicide. So he's been... He has that on his shoulders. Yeah. Um, and he meets uh, a, a young woman from Europe. Uh, they start up a relationship. Meanwhile, Roy Scheider is a secret agent working for the United States government. And he is starting to believe that someone is trying to kill him. Uh, he has a boss played by William Devane in the book. They were lovers. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. In fact, they actually oh. left in some of the dialogue when he like gets to Paris at the beginning of the movie, he calls William Devane. William Devane's character's last name is Janeway. Hmm. And so he calls him Janie. That's like his like nickname. But and, when and he, his and Roy Scheider's nickname is Doc. So when Roy Scheider like gets to his hotel room, he calls someone named Janie and says, get your cute little ass over here. 
And you don't find out that that he's talking about a dude until later in the film. So it's implied, but apparently in the book it was way more explicit. Well, just make it explicit. I know it was the seventies; they were being dumb about it. But still uh, still dumb about uh, it. No, no, they're being dumb about it. No, no denying it. But you you didn't mention the blink and you miss it gay character in Onward, but yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Thanks, Pixar. Yeah, good representation. (laughs) I, 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 I'm ashamed that I came upon this phrase a little late in my life, but passive progressive. Just mm. totally fits something like onward. That's a good. That's a good way of putting yeah, it's like, it. Yeah. Look, look how progressive we are, really. So if you sneeze, you miss how progressive you are. Good yeah. job, Pixar. Disney's done that several times, times lately. Yeah, Beauty, Beauty and the Beast. So Rise of the Skywalker. So you're yeah. saying I could like snip out a few seconds of film and still sell it to homophobic countries overseas? Good job, Disney. Yeah, yeah that's okay, that's yeah. that's the Disney way of it. Yeah. Um, in any case, Roy Scheider is a special agent, and he is involved in some clandestine goings on, and he believes that someone is out to kill him. And we find out about an hour into the movie. First off, we find out people are trying to kill him. And there's a really fucked up fight where his hand almost gets like sliced off with like a razor wire. And it's really just like intimate and creepy. And like, and they're, they're like actually feeling pain. It's yeah, not like badass action hero stuff. It's not cool. It's not James Bond. Hmm. It's very, it's more three days of the condor. It's more grounded than that. Um, and then eventually we find out that Roy Scheider is indeed Dustin Hoffman's brother. Mm-hmm. And because of a car accident that happened at the beginning of the movie. Uh, totally by coincidence. Totally by coincidence. That, that, that had nothing to do with like yeah. the plot or anything. It was just angry New York traffic. Yeah. Two dudes like were like gotten into a New York traffic jam. One of them yelled something anti-Semitic at the other, and they ended up like chasing each other down the city streets until they both collided with an oil tanker and exploded. Turns out that the guy who said something anti-Semitic was the brother of a Nazi in hiding, played by Lawrence Olivier. And now that his brother is dead, Olivier needs to come to New York City and get into a safe deposit box, which has all of the gold and diamonds that he stole in the concentration camps in World War Two. Now that's a lot. <laughs> that's that's a like lot, that's yeah. like three different movies going on right there. Uh, and I absolutely love the way that Marathon Man parcels out all that information. Where there are coincidences upon coincidences. There are backstories, there are weird complications, how Roy Scheider is connected and to Lawrence Livy and everything is not adequately explained, but it's in there. And even though yeah, you're right. If you really think it out, it's a little convoluted and maybe doesn't all make sense. But as the information is presented to you, it is always like a revelation. It's like, oh my God, that's how these things come together. <laughs> and it's constantly riveting, like throughout. So that when the movie finally kicks in and someone dies and Dustin Hoffman is like kidnapped by the Nazis because they think he might know something and then tortured and stuff. Any other movie, that would be in the first half hour. <laughs> Any other movie. Yeah. And then the whole movie would be, and then the whole thing is like he escapes, but because he was like running for a marathon, he's got better cardio than everybody and he can run all through New York while they're chasing him. Any other movie, that were made today, that would be the whole movie. Yeah. It's well, like the last half hour of the marathon, man. Like well, what, what I appreciate about the Marathon Man, and we 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 see this sometimes in big uh, Hollywood thrillers, where the ordinary man is brought into this you know dark web of intrigue, mm. and for the Very most, Hitchcock, yeah, yeah for, for the most part, uh, the 
even though they're outsiders, they somehow find a way to weather this extreme scenario, and sometimes they become a badass by the end. It's so boring. Uh, it's been done well. It's it, it. Of course, it's been done well, but it's still a boring conceit. It's that, been that overdone. I think if, it's if you if you get put in an action scenario, you will become an action badass because as audience members who are men who have that fantasy, uh-huh. they think that if they're thrust into an action scenario, they would indeed be the badass. I'd fire a gun and kick a guy in the face. You probably wouldn't. No, you'd fall off a building and die. I uh, would. <laughs> I, when I watch these movies, this is not a power fantasy for mm. me. I'm just like, oh, how's this person who's cooler than me going to get out of this? Mm. Like, I've never like associated with a protagonist. Well, and it's always like, you know, talk, talk, will you talk? Uh, no. Well, uh, I'll kill you. Do what you got, man. <laughs> I, I, you have me tied up. I have well, nothing to and, do here. And this whole sequence is a famous scene where because uh, uh, Zell, the character played by Laurence Olivier, um, he was a dentist. So he uses dental d- d- implements as torture. And there's this incredibly famous scene from the movie that you've probably seen or heard or at least Re- seen referenced. Satirized, even yeah. if you've never seen the movie where he's got Dustin Hoffman tied to a chair and he's got like a dental drill. And he keeps saying, is it safe? Hmm. And Dustin Hoffman's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Is it safe? Sure, it's safe. Mm-mm. Is it safe? No, it's not safe. <laughs> Is it safe? I don't know what you're talking about. And when you they're torturing you to get information and you have no information to give one way or the other. <laughs> like, holy shit. What you is, is just so stuck. Like, there's nothing you can do. Well, and using uh, like... Dent, a dental drill is a, an implement of torture. It was so innovative, and uh, that's kind of gone down in well, cinema I, history as something very kind of... We, it's something we can all relate to, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, nobody yeah. likes going to the dentist. If you've ever had the dentist actually drill on you, it's not fun. And there's two interesting things about this scene. One is very, very simple, which is... Um, I think if it were done now, there would be this temptation to show it in kind of like a hostile way, yeah, like it carving into the I, tooth. I, I, and yeah, watch the tooth flying off or whatever. All they really do to really sell it is they have that high-pitched drill, like that wee. Mm. They make that noise as loud as possible, like it was actually in your skull. <laughs> and it is so visceral and effective. Mm. But I remember I read, um, William Goldman published the screenplays for a lot of his movies, and they came with a lot of notes. And one of the things that he wrote about Marathon Man is when he was studying, when he needed to study for Marathon Man, and he was studying things about, like, jewels and mm. uh, how Nazis hid away. And he was interested, in, and he spoke to a dentist about, like, I had this idea for a character, and he's, the original plan was he has a toothache the entire story. And then the villain uses a drill to drill into that tooth mm-hmm. without anesthetic. Isn't that scary? And the dentist says, no, not really, because uh, that tooth is probably dead. Like, the nerve endings in that tooth are probably killed because the cavity is that bad. Uh, and then he, when Goldman tells a story about how the dentist got really creepy and wild-eyed, but you know what it really hurt? <laughs> if you drilled into a healthy tooth, that would be the kind of pain that nobody could withstand. And when Goldman's like, I need a new dentist. <laughs> this is not cool at all. But that's what he did. He ended up drilling into a healthy tooth because that's scarier. And I haven't told you about the leeches. <laughs> But uh, what, what I appreciate about the Marathon Man, what I was getting at about how uh, the Dustin Hoffman character doesn't become a badass. In fact, he's destroyed by this experience. Yeah. He realizes that uh, his brother has been part of this secret spy CIA organization. I don't think it's technically the CIA. They, they call it, what do they and, call it, like the organization or something? Something but like that, something the, vague. The idea is that they're like black ops, they're doing the stuff yeah, that then, the government doesn't want them to do, which one of the things they've been mm-hmm. doing is actually working with... 
Nazis in hiding and yeah, instead of and, turning yeah, them and, in, and, which is and, really fucked up. Yeah, and William Devane kind of gives him information as they go, and he's really brusque, and he's William Devane, so he's awesome. I love I've, William Devane, by the way. People do not talk about William Devane enough. He had, like, mm. this peak, I think, in the 70s where people knew who he was, and he was well, starring in major well, for, films. First of all, see Rolling Thunder. That's kind of the one you're about to get Rolling, zero in on. Rolling but, Thunder's fucking amazing. Uh, but he's great in everything. Yeah, every time you'll see him in something, after you see Rolling Thunder, you're like, ah, that guy. Yeah, <laughs> the Rolling Thunder guy. Rolling Thunder is one of the better, like, revenge movies ever. It's also got an early Tommy Lee Jones performance. He plays, like, the third lead in the film, and he's no, not in it very much, but he's really good with what he's got. They show this clip in the preview. It's uh, William Devane comes in, he's missing a hand because of what happened in the movie, and uh, he's just look, looking at uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, who's out of focus in the foreground. Yeah, they were in I, Vietnam together. Yeah, like, yeah. I found him. Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, who? The man who killed my son. Look at my gear. Yeah, yeah that's, it's that's just the whole like scene, yeah. we're not going to discuss the morality. It's nothing like we are both damaged people, and we are doing this. And yeah. there's something that's just so the that the fact that that so kind of thing is that, yeah. yeah, it's so dire, and yet it's so emotionless. Is it's it shouldn't work. You should mm. say to yourself, "Oh, how inhuman!" But you buy it in that film because they're such good actors. Oh, what a great film. But yeah, Will, William Devane has you know been telling uh, Babe, who is the, the Dustin Hoffman character, all about you know these things they've been doing, and it's finally revealed that they've been working with the Nazis because they need to do all this money they're, laundering it, that they're it's, doing. It's basically it's, what they're doing is they're saying that uh, we're working with this guy to get all the other Nazis. Pretty so, thin, so say, yeah. pretty thin, yeah. I'm not even sure I believe it. Yeah. But yeah, but Babe reacts with complete horror and outrage and is never stops being ho- horrified or outraged yeah. by what's going on. How you do this? You killed my brother, killed people? Yeah. That's not okay. That's not who we are. Yeah. And he's a historian and you know his his father killed himself over this stuff like this. It's like, yeah. how can you possibly do this? Uh, there's this there's in- there's two really great scenes. One is yeah. the the climax, which I don't want to ruin, but there's a confrontation between Olivier and Dustin Hoffman, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, and there's a really, really wonderful scene near the end where the Olivia character, a Nazi who's been in hiding, oh, this has is to, amazing. He has to come out of hiding to go get his diamonds, mm-hmm. which and are in, which are in New York. And he, yeah, he has to get them appraised, and so he has to go into the Jewish section of New York, the Diamond District, the Diamond District, to get his diamonds and get them appraised. Where he's recognized. Oh my God! There's this woman <laughs> across the street. This old woman recognizes him, oh. and, and she knows tailing him, and yeah. begins tailing him, and starts yelling to get him, get that murderer. He's a murderer, and, and no one believes her because it's New York. Mm. This is one of the great New York movies, by the way. Where like there's just like everything about New York really like informs a scene, even if it doesn't seem relelevant. Oh. Like the sort of apathy over people yelling oh, in no, the street, no. or the, I, the, I like or the, the, the people like flipping each other off in traffic mm. and everything. The, the, in fact, the entire, uh, all of the action of the film and the eventual downfall of this Nazi character was all predicated on a single New York traffic accident. Yeah. So if New York had better traffic, if they had <laughs> cleaned it up, then Nazis would get away. <laughs> it's an interesting thought. Mm. But yeah, this whole saga, this woman's whole story is in like one scene mm. where she sees this person, this inhuman monster, just walking down the street <laughs> and no one believes her. Mm. And it's terrifying what an incredible moment in cinema and he's horrified because he knows exactly what's going oh, yeah. on he knows, yeah. he knows he's he's like out in the open and he's completely exposed and this could be the end of him mm. but he has to do it and so his fear i'm not sympathetic with his fear but it leads to such great suspense because we want someone to catch him but maybe they can't maybe like Society is like so fucked up that you could just literally yell, stop that person. They're a war criminal. I'm an eyewitness. Mm. And people would go, eh, pedestrians like, ah, 
And that's something that I think is really remarkable about Marathon Man and a lot of the similar kind of government or political thrillers of the 70s. Mm. Um, there's a lot of cynicism here. There is a lot of really jaded... This is not a fun political thriller. This is not a fun espionage thriller. I mean, it's exciting. Mm. But it's not escapist. This yeah. is confrontational. And this is just saying everything's really fucked up. Like, World War II ended and Nazi war criminals got away, and there are people who are doing nothing about it and indeed profiting from it. Mm. Bye! Like, yeah. holy, what the <laughs> fucking shit! Oh my god! Like, it's so intense, and you're right, Dustin Hoffman does feel the weight of that in a way that it, you really couldn't have a hero be flip about this. Mm. This is not fun. This is a horrifying thing. And what he goes through is horrifying. And you feel that terror. And it's not torture porn because there's no sense of release from, oh, this no, torture is no, no. like it's... exciting or gross or cool. This is just well fear. What I appreciate about a filmmaker like John Schlesinger, he's, mm. he's another one. We actually were talking about uh, uh, this recently, uh, not, not on a podcast, mm. about uh, certain filmmakers who are kind of difficult to label as auteurs because they don't have like a trademark style yeah. necessarily. Or but like make a, it yeah. consistently good but the, but yeah, movies. They, yeah. And, they, and because they work like across genres, even though they do, do it really, really well, yeah. they can't, they're not often mentioned in conversations of the greats because they were a little bit ineffable compared to some of the people we consider to be auteurs. Yeah. But John Schlesinger uh, did Schlesinger, Midnight Cowboy, yeah. Day of the Locust, Marathon Man, Falcon and the Snowman. He was a good filmmaker. Yeah, he, he even did a, a 90s thriller that I was fond of at the time. I haven't seen it since the 90s but it's called an eye for an eye oh with which uh, was, sally field with sally field and yeah. Kiefer sutherland about Kiefer, it's it's a revenge movie but it's i and this is what i i like about john schlesinger he's bringing kind of a moral dimension to what he's doing mm. he's actually looking at these things and trying to figure out what's actually right and wrong here it's in a pretty ham-fisted sort of way mm. uh but i think he's actually he's setting himself apart from a lot of other filmmakers by actually bothering to address the moral outrage that should be part of these stories all the time. And he would tell these really intense stories, but then he would also do cold comfort farm. I love cold comfort farm. Yeah. It, it was a British TV movie. It was released theatrical here in the States uh, about uh, Kate Beckett. It's essentially an inversion of uh, how like sort of a down to earth kind of impoverished slob will move in with a bunch of rich people and make them like kind of loosen up a little bit, learn yeah. a little bit more about what it's like to really live. Cold Comfort Firm is just the opposite. It's about a very rich, posh woman who has no connection to like the actual land and has done no real work in her life. Mm -hmm. She goes to this really miserable mud farm out in the country <laughs> to like gain some experience, and she uses her wealth and her know-how to turn their lives around. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a fun little inversion. Yeah. He also did a really good movie that I think is now streaming somewhere. I, I'm not sure, but um, you remember when Tim Burton came out with that musical version of Sweeney Todd, the adaptation of the Broadway musical? Oh, yeah. Uh, there is a better Sweeney Todd, and it is not based on the musical. It's just based on the story, directed mm. by John Slusser, starring Ben Kingsley and Joanna Lumley. Nice. Uh, it is called The Tale of Sweeney Todd. It was an HBO. I'm sorry, it was a Showtime original movie, uh, and it's just really good. It just tells that story, uh, I think, better. Um, I, I like the Tim Burton one fine. Don't get me wrong, but I actually, if I were to pick one version to survive for the ages. I would pick the Ben Kingsley version, and um, yeah, I think it's, it might be on Tubi or one <laughs> okay. of those like or one of those like weird side uh -huh. uh, uh, streaming services. Side stream. 
to, but uh, you, to, should, you should totally is check so it out. Tubi so insulted right now. No, no, but like Tubi's what I what I love about Tubi, even even though it's owned by Fox, you know the Fox News people, which mm. they oh, started they started showing ads for their like political content, and oh, that's God. that's been put, grabbing me the wrong way. But um, they have the weird stuff. They have all of the movies that no other streaming service wants to carry anymore, and it's free. <laughs> And they're fun, weird things. Some of them have never been released on home video. Period. Hmm. That's great. I love that. So I think it might be on that or it's on something similar. But yeah, you should be able to find that online somewhere. And it's really good. Yeah. And Marathon Man is really good. I really, Yeah, I really yeah. liked Marathon Man. It's uh, oddly I, constructed, but it's... It rips like it's, it's fascinating. But I mean, I'd, I'd say it's mostly loose ends, but that's actually true of a lot of modern spy thrillers as I, well. It's true of a lot of Bond movies yeah. where if you really you just like you, you the Bond should be simple. They're not sometimes unless they're unnecessarily complicated. I, I watched all of the Bond movies in like rapid succession, and I realized like what after like four movies in a row that I, I was not following the plot to any of these things. Almost all, almost every James Bond plot is pretty crap. Like there's a few that are simple. Hmm. And you don't need it to be complicated to drive the story. You just need to get make it an excuse for Bond to go to different places. Mm. I feel like, generally speaking, the better Bond films are pretty easy to wrap your head around. Yeah. Casino Royale, GoldenEye, uh, For Your Eyes Only, uh, From Russia With Love. Mm. Uh, these are pretty direct films. Goldfinger. Guy wants gold. Done. <laughs> they don't need more than that. He kills a person with gold. It leads it to the gold guy. He says, I'm going to steal all that gold. And then he tries. That's it. That's the whole fucking movie. Anyway. Um, anyway, and that's Marathon Man, too. If you haven't seen Marathon Man, we have kind of ruined it. Uh, but uh, it is really, really good. And I'm really glad I finally got around to it. So, this yeah, is a real treat. We all know you're subscribed to Crackle. So be sure to go. <laughs> you don't have to subscribe to Crackle. Like, just go to the website. That's true. Crack- Crackle is free. Marathon Man is also on Tubi. Maybe try okay. that. Oh, go to Tubi. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, it's fine. They, they both uh, have, it's free, but both of them do have ads. They'll, yeah. they'll break up the movie with ad breaks. Yeah. Although I noticed Crackle uh, front loaded their ads. Like oh, at the, at so the you start, watch at, like five in a row or something. At like the that. well, at the start, there's a lot of ad breaks, but then at, through that, the second half, there's almost there's like hardly any. Oh, so well, that's yeah. not so bad. Um, I wasn't really paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so yeah, so that's the the critically acclaimed streaming club. We'll be back next week uh, with the film that won our latest poll. There is a new streaming service called Peacock which is the NBC Universal streaming service. Uh, it's an interesting service. It's mostly free with ads. I think it with ads. It's free. That's, it's, that, that's the, the edge they have over the It's free. They do have a premium service, but it's actually like, and you would think that like all the good stuff would be like you have to pay for it. That is not the case. They have a lot of good stuff that is completely free. And I'll give mm. them some credit for that. So we decided to explore... Uh, what was available on Crackle, and we decided to look at some classic films. On, on Peacock. I'm sorry, on Peacock. Yeah. Peacrackle. <laughs> uh, we sure. decided to look at Peacockle, and uh, we uh, we decided to pick some classic films that one or both of us hadn't seen, and the film that won the poll is a film that, when people ask me, as they ask critics a lot, mm. uh, what's a famous movie you've never seen? Everyone's got one. I don't care what... Leonard Maltin has one. Everyone has one. Everyone has a prominent motion picture they just never got around to or didn't have a lot of interest in or just never came up or they were saving it for a rainy day. Everyone's got them. And the one that I almost always say is The Deer Hunter. (laughs) Well, 
This week I'm watching The Deer Hunter. I have to. It's an assignment from our patrons. Uh, it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Every week you can vote for the critically acclaimed streaming club film. The Deer Hunter is, of course, a film that won Best Picture. Uh, Vietnam film directed by Michael Cimino, uh, starring Robert De Niro, Willem Dafoe, the great John Cazale, and Meryl Streep. Um, and, uh, yeah, so you can you can vote for that. You can vote for future episodes of Cancel Too Soon. You get a ton of exclusive content. You get our uh, Star Trek podcast. You get our Firefly podcast. You get our Oscars podcast, our Disney podcast. Uh, we just had a nice Google Hangout with a lot of our top-tier members. You can sponsor your own podcast up at, at that top tier. Thank you to everybody who's been doing that. Uh, we have some more of those coming up real soon. Uh, and, of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And then next week, in terms of new stuff, we have Radioactive, uh, the new Marie Curie biopic. That's right, we directed do. Directed by Marjan Satrapi, who I think is a very interesting filmmaker. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Stars Rosamund Pike from Gone Girl. And um, there will be other things as well, but that's the that's the big one that I'm aware of. And, um, yeah. That's it. Cool. We'll see you next week. Everyone's a critic. I'm sorry, what?